Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Sean Wong and Bart Elder. They are in Pella, Iowa. Could you guys tell us what uh, your roles are at Vermeer? Sure, yeah. First, uh, thanks for the invite. Glad to be here. Uh, so my name is Sean Wong. Uh, probably uh, my story is kind of uh, non-typical for the hay and forage industry as suggested by my last name and probably my accent. Yep. Uh, you can tell uh, uh, I was originally from China, grew up in a city of 8 million people, and I went to Beijing, the capital of the country, studied aerospace engineering. Upon graduation, I uh, started working for Ramir as an engineer. We have a pretty good factory there. I started working on horizontal directional drills, and then uh, branch out to the environmental side of the business, like brush chippers and uh, top grinders. Uh, as we got more involved in the biomass industry, uh, which utilized like uh, ag and forestry uh, residue products to generate electricity, I uh, got involved in the ag business uh, as well. Uh, so I worked there uh, for six years. Uh, and then uh, about nine years ago, I uh, decided to uh, raise my uh, family here in the United States. Uh, so we moved here. Uh, actually, my wife is uh, from here. She grew up uh, in this power area uh, in Iowa. Yeah, so I guess uh, I've been in the, the forage department since uh, as uh, I got more familiar with the industry, with uh, our products. I also picked up more uh, product uh, responsibilities. So currently I cover uh, mowers, rakes, field processors, tethers, uh, and also Bart and I share uh, responsibilities on uh, our uh, feeding solutions like uh, TMR mixers. Bart? Yeah, yeah. Hi, thanks again for, for inviting us uh, onto the podcast. And yeah, my name is Bart Elder. Um, uh, I'm an Iowa farm boy. Uh, grew up in Iowa, never got a chance to leave the, the state, but uh uh, early on, I, I've always been involved in, in farming, started out with a small hay and, and cattle operation, hog operation in the late 90s. From there, kind of transferred into more of a, a full-time cattle operation and then uh, kind of led me into some other opportunities, but eventually landed at, at Vermeer 19 years ago. Started out as a, as a territory manager, uh, traveled several different states about two and a half years ago became product manager working alongside of Sean and uh, I work with the Baylor group mostly. Um, Sean and I share the the silage wrappers as well and then and the feeding solutions. So really enjoyed my time here in Pella, been in Pella about 33 years now, I think it is. And um, it's a great area. Uh, really enjoy being at Vermeer. Well, thank you for being willing to talk to us. And it's always nice to have the product managers because you guys know the swathers, the balers, the rakes, inside out, upside down and backwards. That's one of the things I want to dive into today is how do producers, as we're thinking about making those huge investments, match up the equipment that we're looking to buy with the size and scope and scale and the weather conditions and the regions? How do we match that equipment up with the producer's needs? That's a great question. And there's, there's been many questions that you need to ask yourself or the producer 
needs to understand uh, to really come up with that determination of that product. And, you know, those questions are, you know, how many acres are you, are you going to try and harvest? Um, you know, how many bales a year do you use? You know, and you need to understand uh, what's the intended use of the hay? You know, are you going to feed it yourself? Are we going to try and market this, you know, at a hay auction? Are we going to, who are we going to sell it to? Another thing to consider is, you know, what, what horsepower do you have? What, what tractors do you have available that you're going to use in your hay operation? Uh, different crop types make a, make a difference there as well, you know, in determining what, what tractor you need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always say you want to start with the mower. If you're, if you're a, you're a new customer to, to the haying business, you know, the first thing you want to determine is, is what mower are you going to purchase? Because that really determines the, the size of rake that you're going to need. And then truly understand, you know, the number of bales that you're going to put up in a season. It will determine, you know, the, the size of baler, you know, how much durability do you need? And, you know, crop type, you know, uh, are you going to be baling just dry hay? Or are you going to, you know, utilize uh, baling some, some baleage or silage as well? Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to be baling corn stalks? That all those kind of things, you know, really determine which of those products that you're you're going to put into your operation. What came to mind as you were talking there is if if we're talking about a swather or mower, whatever your vocabulary or yeah yeah mower mower conditioner yes uh, we might think about the type of crop that we're taking in uh, if you're doing native grass haze in the central part of the country and a ton or two to the acre kind of production, you can have a fairly wide uh, cutter head on that. I've actually seen some industry trends in the West where you're putting up alfalfa and they want the quickest possible dry down on that alfalfa. I've seen very large scales of producers doing thousands of acres of alfalfa, irrigated alfalfa, going to a 12-foot head, uh, a 12-foot cutter bar, because they want a faster dry down. Could you, could you talk through some of those considerations? So you met, we mentioned mower versus mower conditioner. So definitely, uh, you know, there are some differences there. I think uh, it will highly depend on the, the type of the crop. Uh, so like a alfalfa or some really uh, stemmy crops, you probably need the conditioner to mm-hmm. crush the, the stems, uh, let the moisture out quicker. Uh, but for a lot of grass hay, uh, we see, uh, just as fast dry down with a, a plain mower just so you can lay the crop uh, wide and flat. So in your example there, uh, Central Plains, alfalfa, definitely we see more and more people uh, using uh, bigger and wider uh, mowers to, you know, knock crop down uh, faster, mm-hmm. you know, get acres uh, in a day. And also the, the faster you go earlier, you, you can mow down the crop, the, the earlier the drying process will start. Um, so definitely there's a lot of benefit uh, of going uh, to a wider mower. Um, now, Vermeer has a, a mower that folds in half because it would otherwise be too wide to go down the road, right? Yes. So we actually started this, uh, we started in 2011, yeah, 12 or so. Uh, with a like a folded color bar design, so basically it's two color bars uh, mounted on the same frame, trailed uh, frame, mm-hmm. uh, and they can uh, fold forward 
in a very narrow setup for road transport, go through gates. Uh, but in the field, they expand and uh, cut a very wide uh, width. And, and also, uh, we allow the two color bars uh, flow independ independently, you know, throughout the terrain. Uh, we've had a lot of success with, with those mowers. Uh, currently, we offer three uh, models uh, covering a 15 and a half foot, uh, 17 0.8 foot and uh, 21, almost 21 foot uh, cutting width. We talked about those horsepower requirements. I know there's there's a lot of difference between pulling implements on flat ground versus hills, and there's a lot of considerations to make there. Could you talk through the general horsepower requirements of those mowers? With a plain mower, without the conditioner, uh, you can save a lot of horsepower. Uh, we're saying probably anywhere between 20 to 30, 35 uh, horsepower we, we can save by not using a conditioner behind the mower. So compared to three-point mount mower, the trail, mower, trail mowers don't necessarily save the horsepower, but we can uh, use a slightly smaller tractor because we don't have to carry the weight uh, of the three-point mower. So that's another way to, to look at it. That's why, you know, the, the show mowers are getting more and more popular among producers. Yeah, so for example, um, our large show mower, uh, TM1210, uh, uh, you know, you can really get good performance with 95 to 100, maybe 105 horsepower, PTO horsepower mm -hmm. level ground. Uh, with some terrain, you probably need to increase that uh, horsepower by 15, 20 horsepower just to get it enough performance sure to, to maintain speed through hills and speed. and yeah. i'd imagine ballast gets to be like the weight of the tractor gets to be a, a question too i i've certainly gotten myself into a couple of situations where i got pushed around on hillsides and having having the appropriate weight of tractor makes a big difference I, i'm just gonna throw that one in there yeah, for sure. let's dive into those three-point mowers because that's not something that i have a lot of experience with. What's the widest uh, cutter bar on a three-point mower? Yeah, so currently we offer three-point mower mowers up to uh, 10 and a half feet uh, cutting width. Hmm. That's our 8050 model. So we make uh, uh, four models uh, with uh, five, six, seven, or eight discs uh, cover a pretty wide range of mowing width. So with three-point mowers, you know, that's probably the, the mower everybody uh, knew from uh, very early days, right? Ever since the disc mower, you know, started taking over the, the sickle bar mowers. Uh, that's just the, the way people mow hay. Vermeer recognized there's a huge pain point in the industry to hook up the three-point mowers. It's always a two-man job and sometimes three-person job just to get the hitch to connect. Uh, so actually, uh, several years ago, we launched a new series of uh, three-point mowers uh, that specifically address that issue with a very innovative quick hitch setup. Does that include a quick attach on a PTO? Because that's always the worst. <laughs> well, that's probably something we, we we should look into in the future. Uh, we don't have a great solution right now. Yeah. Everybody loves holding that pin down and wiggling that PTO shaft on or holding the, the, the ears back and pushing. Of course, we all know the, the pains of PTO shafts. We've talked three-point mowers. We've talked trailed mowers. I assume you have non-folding trailed mowers too. Correct. We actually have three. Uh, we actually have two series of 
the non-folding style uh, trolled mowers. So we have a small trolled mower series from uh, eight foot, almost eight foot to 10 and a half foot cutting width. So those mowers are uh, pretty straightforward mowers, very easy to use. They have a drawbar a hitch, easy to hook up with some uh, easy uh, set rubber uh, torsion suspension. Uh, they mm. just uh, good job uh, for producers who don't do a great amount of hay, but just want something uh, easy to use. Uh, we also just came out with our mid-size series trail mowers with three models covering 10 and a half, 12 and 13 and a half feet. So those mowers have a lot of nice features from our large trail mower lineup, such as the you know Q3 cutter bar with shear protection on individual discs. They have hydraulic suspension, which is very easy to set toolessly and follow the, the ground uh, very nicely and very heavy duty frame and just an you know, overall very great product to, to use. Yeah, one thing with our uh, small trail mower lineup uh, compared to the three-point motor mowers that you gain is just the extra flotation, you know, being supported and suspended on that frame. Uh, allows you to to have that extra extra suspension that you may not be able to gain with just a three point mower or a three point mower in a caddy. So uh, really designed, you know, as a as a true mower. Is there a trade off in agility there? I've actually, like I said, I, I'm not really familiar with three point mowers, but I'd imagine that you, there's some agility that you gain with that three point mower. So it'd be good for small fields. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, especially, you know, if you have a lot of ditches or waterways, you know, a lot of people use three-point mowers to, to mow those areas. Uh, and the, the mower itself is fixed to the tractor, mm-hmm. so it can uh, be very maneuverable. But there are some ways, you know, in a trail mower design, which can help with the, with the maneuverability, uh, such as like a swivel hitch. Uh, on our uh, mid-size and large trail mowers that will allow you to make very sharp turns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the wide angle, the, the CV drive lines uh, allow you to mow in different positions. So say if you are approaching a tree or an obstacle in, in the field, you can tuck in the mower, swinging in a little bit. And also our large trail mowers are uh, center pivot style. So you can mow on the left, right, or any position in between. Uh, which will greatly uh, improve the maneuverability. Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. With the 605 in, I feel I can go to the field and we just bail. We're not stopping, we're not adjusting. It's ready to go and it goes. I spend more time bailing with less issues that I've had with other bailers in the past. I'm Ken Moses and I get more hay put upright with the 605 in Vermeer Baylor. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. Let's switch gears and talk about rakes. There's there's no shortage in types and styles of rakes. So first, take me through what styles are out there and available. Maybe we'll talk through some of the pros and cons and where you see a wheel rake used versus a, a rotary rake or a twin rake. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Today, there are probably three major styles of rakes. Uh, first of all, you mentioned the finger wheel rakes. Uh, they're ground-driven, uh, very easy to use, uh, economical in general. Uh, they can rake very rough terrains. The speed is, is pretty high. You, you know, you can rake fields pretty 
pretty fast. And then the next style is the, what we call basket rakes or hydraulic basket rakes. You know, in the old days, they're probably driven uh, by ground, but modern basket rakes are driven by hydraulic power, have great durability, and they produce a superior mineral shape and uh, consistency, you get a really nice uh, box-shaped windrow, which is great for, for round balers or for any balers. And also, since they're uh, non-ground-driven, they introduce way less ash into the crop, which is essential for, uh, say, dairy or horse-quality hay. Since they're so durable and very simple design, there's just not a whole lot of maintenance to it. Therefore, they have great trade value. Uh, they hold their values really well. And then the third type is uh, rotary rakes. Uh, that's probably that design started in Europe. Uh, and most players in the market, most products in the market are manufactured uh, in Europe. They're similar to basket rakes uh, in the sense that they're non-ground-driven. Non, uh, so uh, there's definitely less dirt uh, in the crop. And then they make a very nice, consistent windrow as well. Uh, they're probably more like a dome-shaped versus box-shaped uh, from a basket rake, uh, but very, very consistent. Uh, they can achieve uh, center delivery or side delivery with uh, different rotor configurations. But I would, I would say the downside is probably on durability or the you know complexity of maintenance and service. Uh, there's to there's more rake. moving parts in a rotary rake, right? Yeah. Certainly, and raking speed might be uh, slightly slower. I know there's a whole host of specialty rakes, belt rakes, and kind of fluffer, various kinds of fluffer rakes, and those kind of things. Sure, sure. I would say probably, yeah, those three so wheel rakes, uh, hydraulic basque rakes, and uh, rotary rakes are the three uh, mainstream types, I would say, in the North American market. Mm-hmm. But if you go up on the rank, probably get into mergers, you know, for a lot of uh, dairy producers. Uh, that's also a popular choice. We didn't talk about tethers either. So tethers, you know, we've definitely seen more adoption in tether usage. You know, traditionally they are used in the east mm-hmm. or southeast, you know, more uh, weather uh, areas. Uh, but now we're seeing people in the Midwest or, you know, even in the West region start to uh, adopt tethering practice. Uh, people used to think, you know, tedding is a necessary evil to get the hay dry. Uh, but now more and more people realize that's actually a way to actively Im- improve the hay quality, get the hay dry down faster, you know, instead of waiting for the time window to bail. Now you have more control on when you can bail. And also the faster you get the hay to dry uh, to, to the desired moisture range, the less uh, you know, field loss or nutrition loss uh, there will be, therefore higher quality uh, forage. All right, let's talk through how to match up uh, an operation with a tether or the, the couple of different kind of rakes here. How do how does a producer address that? Yeah, it always to me you got to go back to your um, mower size, right? So let's let's use a couple examples. If you're if you've got a a ten foot mower. And, uh, you, you know, you want to do that process as quickly as, as possible. So how do we, what size are we going to need if we're going to take two of those, those swaths? Um, so if, if you left it into a windrow size, you might be able to, like, for example, use our, our 17 foot tether to, to 
to Ted through two of those windrows. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've, if you've got a 12 foot mower, um, and you've laid it out completely flat, um, you're going to need a little larger tether at that point, like a 25 foot tether RT 2510 match up well with that. You know, there's different levels of tethers as well. There's, there's the, the, the tether that uh, you might call your entry level, uh, tether that would go out and just rescue a, a rained on windrow. Um, and there's single, single, we call them, uh, just, a, a two basket tether that would go out and spread that windrow apart, allow it to dry and, and re-rake it. But, uh, as tetting is getting more popular and people are really seeing the advantages, they want a tether that they can go out and ted every cutting with. And that requires a much more durable, uh, tether that's going to last longer, uh, for sure. And, you know, tedding is, is very important to get done timely as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause you can do it when it's too wet and you can do it when it's too dry. So, uh, a larger tether, uh, typically speeds up that, that process and allows that hay to get all tetted at the same time. You know, there's even, believe it or not, there's a lot of guys that even if they're just chopping or, or, or putting up baleage, uh, will still go out and ted. And the real advantage of that is that you get consistent moisture level all through that, that crop. Um, you don't see those wet spots in a bale, for example, or uh, just one part of the bale might be wet, one part of the bale might be dry. It's really important to get the consistent moisture level throughout that whole cutting. I was just talking to a producer the other day that took his round baler out on a field of alfalfa, and it was dry, and then bailed that this is your moisture uh, consistency thing that you just said here. The dew would come in and he was waiting for the dew to come off and the dew came off on the south part of the field where the Mm -hmm. sun was shining Mm -hmm. and he started bailing and the moisture was perfect and he turned the corner along the tree line and all of a sudden he could hear the baler kind of lug down a little bit and he goes, "Ah, something's not right here and he stopped. He waited another hour or so and there were some inconsistencies in that in the final product because of that uh, variability with just within the field. But he took that first bale and put it over by the barn and then set it off aside because it had a wet, a wet spot. Right. Mm-hmm. The next day he'd put all the round bales in the barn and the neighbors called holler in that there was uh, that the barn was on fire, but from their perspective, that one bale actually caught on fire in li- in their line of sight with the barn, so it looked like the barn oh, wow. was on fire. It was kind of a funny story, but that consistency in, in moisture is absolutely vital. Yeah, absolutely. It's also important to, to know where your moisture level is at uh, throughout the field, so we see a lot more people uh, utilize like an onboard moisture sensor. You, instead of uh, wait after you, you bale the field and probe uh, a few, I think uh, with an onboard moisture sensor, you can uh, uh, know the moisture level in real time and make wise decisions accordingly. I'll, I'll help you out with your disclaimer on moisture meters. There's no replacement for your hands, feeling it, yeah. smelling it. Uh, and, and no matter what moisture meter you have, it's, it's just a tool in the toolbox. It's never the end all be all. That's the thing I tell everybody about moisture meters is they're, they're just a tool to add to your senses. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. We utilize uh, scales on our balers too. Um, the combination of scales and a moisture meter will, you know, kind of tell you if it's, if it's accurate, right. So the combination of the two do, does help, but 
you're right. At the end of the day, yeah, the first thing you want to know when you pull into the field is what's the moisture, right? So, uh, yeah, you know, if you got the experience, uh, that's you can usually you know determine that. And a lot of people don't, you know, it's amazing, don't really even understand, you know, what what is, if I'm going to bail dry, hey, what is too high? What what will keep, and you know, what should I do if it's borderline? And you just gave the example of don't put it in the barn, you know. Oh uh, yeah, don't don't put that sure. bale in yeah. the barn. <laughs> you can uh, make that bale size a little smaller. You know, like I know if I bailed some hay that's uh, questionable, I'll instead of making maybe a full six foot bale, uh, make that bale a little smaller because that heat has to get out from the center, right? So if it doesn't have as far to go, it will cool down, cool down quicker, and you know, don't stack them tight together and. A lot of little things to remember um, when even with the storage of that bale, that's maybe questionable more moisture. On the just general price levels, I want to back up to rakes here for a second. Just on general price levels for rakes, what's what's going to be the cheapest option and, and then how does that escalate? Sure. So the cheapest option will be the, uh, the small carded uh, finger wheel rakes. Uh, those are generally 8 to uh, 12 wheels, which covers about... 20 to 24 foot of maxing, uh, maximum width, raking width. And very simple to use. Uh, this car design is fairly simple, but still does a good job in general. Um, and then the next level would be the high capacity style, like bifold style wheel rakes. Uh, those are you know, for producers cover uh, bigger fields or more acres in a year or heavier crops. Uh, they have higher ground clearance for crop flows. And we have we actually have two series. One is more of a, a entry-level series by foot rakes, uh, which is great for like a flyer trains. And we also offer a premium heavy-duty large wheel rakes, 14 or 20 wheels, covers 28 to 40 foot in uh, raking width. They utilize hydraulic uh, suspension on each individual wheel, which uh, it's great for, you know, uh, rough terrains or for corn stock raking, alfalfa or different uh, hay crops as well. So those are the premium type of wheel rakes. But then in general, the basket rakes and the rotary rakes are going to be more expensive than the wheel rakes. Because they have more hydraulic components and... Sure, yeah. And they're in general just built heavier, uh, better quality uh, in general, not, I mean, we have to discuss that case by case, uh, but then, and also they're great for handling uh, weather crops as well. So if you uh, rake uh, silage very often, uh, definitely the either basket rake or rotary rake will be the way to go. Ah, uh, yeah. Ground drive rakes don't work well in, in wet material, for sure. Yeah, right. Bart, this is your area of expertise, right, Baylors? Yeah. Take us through what's available, what's out there. Of course, we're going to put a point on the distinction between a baler that's designed to do silage and a baler that can do silage and just some of those considerations between wet and dry when we get there. Yeah. So, you know, certainly depends on, you know, how many uh, bales you're you're looking to put up uh, in the year and, and, and what that crop type is. Um, really determines the, the baler that's for you. Again, horsepower plays a part of that. You know, our classic series balers are, are those balers that for that producer that just going to bale maybe a few hundred bales a year, consistent crop type of, of grass, uh, those types of things, uh, just dry hay mostly. You know, that baler is going to produce a great looking bale and 
something that they can you know, either feed themselves or, or, or sell. Um, you know, for those producers that, that have a little more, going to put up more bales in a, in a year looking, you know, to increase in, in terms of, of features and, and bale density um, and, and productivity, you know, they maybe got to just get more done at the end of the day. You know, the signature baler is going to provide those features for you. You know, if you got a, if you're a customer that's doing a lot of custom work or just even has a, you know, several thousand bales of hay to put up in a, in a year's time, you know, look to our, our premium baler, our 605N balers. They, they offer the most durability, the most capacity and, and productivity of, of our, of our baler lineup, you know, bale density. If you're looking for that super dense bale, you know, in a, in a dry package, you might say, you know, those balers are going to give, give you those, uh, that super dense, great looking bale shape and the most features, you know, we can even get into some automation, some of those types of things, uh, with the premium, you know, our pro series balers, you know, if you're, if you're looking to bale silage, I mean, you're looking uh, to to pre-process that hay or chop that hay as it's going through the baler. The Pro Series balers are are the ones to look for. We offer a 17 knife system, and anytime you're baling that wetter, tougher crop to bale, definitely recommend a baler with a drop floor. Uh, nobody likes to unplug a baler. I know I don't. Um, that drop floor feature just allows you to pass those slugs through easily, and and that baler is just designed to handle, you know, dense bale density is so important in baleage or silage. Um, we need to be able to, to get that oxygen out of that bale as quickly as possible. So dense bale that's wrapped properly will, will get you there. So you need a, you know, need a baler with some, the belts, uh, you know, endless belts are, are better for, for baleage. They can handle the, the denser uh, bales and the density that you're putting into that bale. So those are, you know, some of the balers that we'd offer. And I have to mention our, our uh, self-propelled baler, the ZR5 that, that we launched a few years ago. And that's really for that, that commercial producer that's got a lot of hay to bale. And definitely we can get more done in a day with that. Uh, kind of addresses a, a labor issue. It's, it's extremely easy to operate. The comfort of that machine, you know, if you're in really rough conditions and, and, and even if you're spread out, travels down the road very fast and just a, a, a dream to, to bail with. And a lot of agility to that, I'd imagine. Yeah, the maneuverability of that baler is just second to none. Um, that's really where you gain a lot of time in, in the baling process is just turning short or, you know, turning into that next windrow uh, when you're turning on the end instead of skipping a windrow because I want to protect my driveline and, and those types of things. It's just a, it's a, it's a machine designed specifically for that baler. It's not designed to do anything else. It's, uh, it's got a lot of features to it that, that you just don't get out of a t- traditional tractor baler combination. I think it's the only self-propelled round baler in the industry, right? Yes, it is. I don't um, think you have any yeah, competition in that space. No, we, we don't. And, uh, it's really catching on, you know, it was a new concept, uh, that we had to kind of sell the concept and it was one of those, uh, you know, you get a lot of doubters and, uh, you can just get that customer or producer in the seat and just really, uh, let them see the, the comfort, the, the visibility, what the extra features of, of that machine can do for you being specifically designed, uh, just to run that baler. 
And then uh, when that customer has to get back in his uh, tractor baler combination and, and go bail again, uh, he's not so happy. He typically likes to stay in that, that ZR5 for sure. We didn't talk a lot about wrappers. Um, it's just important to, uh, you know, when you're selecting a, a bale wrapper, if you're using baleage, it's just the final step to really producing high quality material. You know, I was just telling telling Sean before we, we got on here, uh, last year I, I have a, a small hay uh, field that I bale and I put it up in, in baleage, number one, because I don't have a lot of extra time. I usually got to do it on the weekend so I can I can narrow that that time down to just a couple of days, but really put up the best quality hay that I that I put up in a long time. Utilized our, our chopper balers and our standard balers to put that material up, uh, but wrapped it uh, with our with a I've done it both ways, single bale wrapper and a, a inline wrapper. But it's really important to use the the right amount of, of plastic. Really dense bale to start with makes a difference. But don't skimp the, the plastic and, and make sure you get it stored in the right place if you're really after that extra quality. And uh, it's amazing, you know, what that extra quality of product does because you just have less waste, cattle eat it better, more palatable. It's just kind of the, the final step in, in that product. So I've had folks ask me, how much plastic do I put on a silage bale or a haylage bale? And the answer that I always give them is put plastic on until your wallet hurts and then <laughs> and then do just a little bit more. Yeah, it's always more than you think. And uh uh-huh. it seems like you're you're putting a ton of plastic on there, but the mistakes that I have made is not enough. Is not enough. Yep. Yeah. You know, I would say the beginning of the year for sure, if you're you know, you're gonna be longer until the time that you actually feed that product, you definitely need more at that time. Uh, maybe the last cutting of the year, you can, if there's ever a time to skimp, but I s- still wouldn't suggest it. No. Uh, you, you need that extra plastic on there to preserve that bale. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think you asked a lot of good questions today, great questions. I wish we could give you better answers or like <laughs> more straightforward answers. Uh, but it's so, it's so region it, specific, right? Right. It, like, you, like we discussed, there's so many factors going into those decisions. There's not a straight answer to to those questions sometimes so i would say probably you know your best bet sometimes your local uh, dealers or peers uh, you know that's what haking is for right and also that's what your local Ramir dealers are for you know we have a great dealer network throughout the u.s and throughout u.s and canada uh, they're uh, hard-working nice people very closely connected to the hay and forage and cattle business so they can definitely offer uh, great suggestions, uh, figure out, you know, what you really need. Um, and also there are probably problems uh, nobody have solved today. Uh, that's our job, you know, Bart and I, that's probably the, the most fun part of our job is to understand uh, what problems are there today that nobody is providing a good solution. And, you know, being a North American based company where just a phone call away or several hours driving away. You know, we constantly have uh, people going out, understanding customers' uh, operations and try to help them out. So that's a great part of being a North American-based company. Yeah, we certainly just focus on hay tools here and in, in we really try to be the expert in the field when it comes to, to putting up hay and, and different types of hay and, and really solving those needs for our customers. You know, Gary Vermeer was the innovator of the round baler, right? 
so we've been in this business a long time and, and we're proud of that fact and we want to carry on that legacy uh, that Gary Vermeer started 51 years ago. Thank you both, Sean and Bart. Pleasure. It's an honor to be on here. So <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you to both of you. And, and it's no secret that Vermeer sponsors the podcast. I hope that's not a secret. Without that partnership, that relationship here, this podcast wouldn't be possible. So thank you to Vermeer. Thank you to Nick Palmieri at Palmieri Sound and to Jessica Palmieri for doing our social media coordination. Mm-hmm.